Hello again, Thoughtvolutionists. I'm your host, Stéphane Dubier, and I hope that you've had a good week. Perhaps you managed to make amends with an old foe, found time to finally read that book you had been meaning to start, or made a new friend in your neighborhood. Whatever it may be, I'm sure if you reflect for just a minute, you will find that the past week offered at least one spark of happiness, one speck of joy, and an ounce of true fulfillment. That is what we all seek, isn't it? Some say that the purpose of life itself is the pursuit of happiness. And isn't that also what we want for those we love? We want them to be happy, to feel joy, to be truly fulfilled. My guest today, just like almost any mom out there, wants nothing more than just that for her son. Deb is 64 years old and has made the happiness, joy, and fulfillment of others her mission and passion as she tries to, in her own words, provide help and support to her little corner of the world. She's been happily married to her husband, Al, for 45 years and is very much about family, love, and acceptance. When her son came out as trans, Deb did not need to pause and think and reassess whether she loved him. Although he was born as a girl in 1989, Deb always had the feeling that something about him was different. Now, do you remember what life was like when you were 18? Because that's the age when Deb's son, Sean, finally came out and admitted to himself and the world that he was in fact a boy. Do you remember how hard you were trying to fit in? Isn't that what we all want? We try to be one of the gang, become friends with the cool kids, wear the trendy clothes, listen to the hip music, all just because as human beings, we long to belong. We want to be quote unquote normal, be a part of the majority, the group that blends in. For most of us, being just like everyone else is what we strive for especially in those early formative years. I know there are people who argue that being gay, being a lesbian, being trans, being non-binary, that it's all a choice. But tell me this, who would choose such a life? One in which you're constantly bullied, ridiculed, questioned, a life where everyone for some reason feels entitled to judge your every move. A life in which the whole world acts like they have authority over you and that they get to tell you what you should and shouldn't feel or do. Depp will tell us what it was like to continue to love when sadly many other parents would stop loving. She will tell us what it was like to not only accept her son, but to use her own family's story to now also help other families in the LGBTQ community as they want nothing more than to be happy, joyful, and fulfilled just as they are. Friends, I don't care where you stand politically or religiously. One thing I love so much about this country is that we might take a minute to evolve, but in the end, we accept the tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, because we understand that all people deserve equality, dignity, freedom, and a chance to find their truth and write their own story. We can all have our different opinions and make our own choices, but we need to stop trying to tell others how they need to live their own lives. That's not on us. I'm very excited to speak to Deb today, and I'm truly grateful that she's here to share her and her family's story. So no matter what, keep those ears and that heart open.
please, and thank you. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about trauma, depression, suicide, and mental illness. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Thank you so much for spending your Saturday afternoon with me and this microphone. It's great to have you here, Deb. Before we talk about your life and your family in more detail, tell us how you would normally spend your Saturday when there is no podcast recording on the schedule. Hi, Stefan. Really glad I'm here. And so a regular Saturday, it totally depends on what's going on. Some Saturdays, not very often, I volunteer at Uplift and spend a a meeting or two with the LGBTQ youth there. Um, But otherwise, my husband and I try and plan like all of our home and property errands and upkeep. And if we have to go pick something up or finish a project, that's what Saturdays are generally used for in my life. (laughs) Sounds like a normal Saturday. What does the word normal mean to you? What does it do to you hearing that word? And what is your own definition of normal in 2023? Okay, so normal to me and my family, um, that has definitely changed over the years. When our kids were younger, normal would be getting them up and off to school or to a baseball practice or soccer practice or an appointment. As they grew up, it was making sure they got to work and got picked up. And as they've all grown and moved on in their own adult lives and gotten married, normal is it it really changes from day to day, um, sometimes week to week, sometimes hour to hour. But in the last four years, being involved so strongly in the LGBTQ community with, with youth, normal has taken on, I think, think I feel like a whole new meaning. There really isn't any normal anymore in my life at this moment because I'm so busy trying to make sure that our organization is running smoothly, that my husband and my self take care of our health the way we should, and that we see our grandkids and we we make that time to see our adult children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and have the ability to practice some self-care and spend time with family like everybody does. The reason I asked that question is because there are probably people out there who might say that your family does not quite fit their definition of that word normal. But before we get to that, tell us what life was like for you growing up. My childhood was fairly tumultuous. There were some good times, but my dad... Um, actually chose suicide in 1970. I was 11 years old. He was a Korean War veteran and came back from the Korean War. What um, I believe from his symptoms and um, his mental health struggles was PTSD before that, you know, was ever a diagnosis. And so my dad was an alcoholic, took a lot of prescription medication, Uh, My mom was also an alcoholic for several years um, before she began to recover. And so there was a lot of substance abuse, a lot of domestic violence, some physical violence of my older brother in our home. And so I think a lot of that 
is what affected me to kind of always be on the lookout for maybe people that need help or somebody that's in crisis. And I always kind of attribute my activism to that that same era in my life, watching the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement on the news almost on a nightly basis. That, That still is very clear in my mind. And that the world just didn't treat everybody the same way. And there wasn't a lot of fairness across the board, even though people felt like people were being treated fairly. There was just a, you know, just so much anger and so much hatred at that moment in our country. Um, and I think that really affected me over the years. And I only really came to understand that probably in the last four or five years, how that affected me and brought me into the work I do in the upstate at this time. I'm very sorry to hear about the rough upbringing that you had. Now, something positive happened then because you met your husband, Al. You fell in love. You got married. 45 years is a long time, and it's actually longer than I have been alive. So imagining somebody's marriage lasting for such a long time when they weren't exactly set up for success in their life is quite beautiful and impressive, I would say. How did y'all accomplish that? That question is really easy to answer. After my father took his life, we moved out to Michigan from Massachusetts, where I was born. And there is a residential program in Michigan called the VFW National Home. And it's been around, I think, since the 1920s or 30s. And uh, the National Home was started to take in parents and their children of a disabled or deceased war veteran. That has certainly changed over the years due to not as many large wars in our country. But at that time in 1971, my mom moved us out there. And it really was for our family. um, It was a great setting. And it offered my mom and my siblings, you know, a calm, safe place to live. And that's where I met my husband. His mom had passed away. And There were five siblings in his family, and his dad was not able to financially care for them. And so we were in a friend group for a very long time, and we were actually, I was 13, he was 12, and that was our first, like he was my first real boyfriend. And so we've been together kind of ever since then. After high school, uh, I got pregnant. And so as soon as he graduated high school, we got married and had our first baby in 1977, and um, the rest is history. Then at some point in 1989, you gave birth to your son, Sean, born as a biological female at that point. How did life change for you and Al with this new addition to your family? Sean was actually our, our last biological child. Sean was born at home. He was our second home birth. And a year after Sean was born, we picked up and moved from Michigan out to New York, where my husband's job transferred, bought our first house, and had 10 acres out in the country of Western New York. And I say Western New York because when you say you live in New York, everyone has this vision of New York City and tall buildings. And we actually lived in Wyoming County, New York, and um, 
there were actually more cows in the county than people. That is a true fact. It probably still is a true fact to this day. And so we took advantage of the fact that we had this house, 10 acres in the country, and could raise our kids the way we wanted to raise them and give them the freedom to run and hunt and raise animals. And so it was very obvious as Sean grew up that he was not presenting as a female, even at probably age four, um, when he wanted to dress in blue jeans, overalls, Carhartts, work boots. And at that time, it didn't really strike us as that unusual because, like I said, we lived around farms and a lot of the people in our county dressed, you know, they were farmers. So they dressed because that's how they worked. And so it wasn't until a few more years, kindergarten started. And, you know, usually a five-year-old girl is going to go to school and want to assimilate into what the other girls look like. Well, that did not happen. And as the years went on, it was very obvious that our child was, even though they were born anatomically female, was not identifying as female. They were identifying as male, and we thought we might have a lesbian daughter. And we were like, that's cool. You know, we don't have a problem with that. Um, and it wasn't until Sean was about 16 that him and I were talking, and it was it was obvious that he was ready to discuss his sexual orientation and gender identity. And it first came out as bisexual, and then speed up a few years. Um, he moved down here to South Carolina because at that time, our other children were living in South Carolina and uh, started to go to USC Upstate and was speaking with a guidance counselor and emailed us one day and said, hey, this is kind of where I am right now. I think I'm transgender. And so we were like, okay, what do we do now? How do we support you? What do you need us to do? And it's just kind of evolved out of that. Now, being different often comes at a cost. Dealing with bullies, constant mocking, self-doubt, questioning, simply not knowing where one belongs. How were things for Sean prior to him coming out as trans? And how were you as a family able to support him when being different probably felt like an incredibly heavy burden to carry at times? When Sean was about 13... I think he was in eighth grade at that time. It was difficult for him, and it was not, we were not aware of how, how he was struggling. I'd have to back up to, to probably a few years before that. He always was on a sports team. He was actually on our small town's football team uh, for, I think, three years. The only girl, and I'm using air quotes right now, um, the only girl at that time on the team, because at that time we did not realize that Sean was transgender. And um, he did pretty well on the football team. And as he grew older, he wasn't allowed to be on the high school football team, but he played soccer and other sports. And so from the time from about 10 to 13 years old, he was still continually dressing in you know, baggy jeans, t-shirt and baseball hat, everything the boys at school would wear. And there were there were a couple bumps in the road for us, I guess interpersonally, because the, you know a funeral would come up, and I'd say oh, we need to go shopping. You know, you should probably wear a dress, and then that would turn into I don't want to wear a dress. And so I tried to respect that 
as often as I could. And I tried to do the best I, I could do. But around 13, middle school, and you know, all the girls at 13 are, are experimenting with makeup and fashion and high heels. And that was not what was going on in our household. And so there was a suicide note found in a friend's locker. I think that's how it went. He had written a note saying that he felt like he wanted to end his life. And um, the friend that found it turned it into a guidance counselor who called me. And we went in and met and had a few meetings. Um, And then everything seemed to really turn around from there. I do remember talking to Sean about that time it was probably that same day after school. And I don't, a lot of your listeners might remember the movie Braveheart. That movie was really popular in our family. We watched it multiple times. And I, I just kind of sat with him because I really didn't know how to approach it. And I just used Braveheart as an example that, you know, if you want to walk around kind of and hold a banner, this is who I am, which I fully support anybody to do that, then you have to be ready to protect that banner and stand up for what you believe in. And I was trying to speak in a way that I wanted to tell him, I know you're not a straight, cis, hetero female, um, but I don't think he was ready at that time to hear that message. And so I, I used the Braveheart analogy, and and I don't couldn't tell you if it helped or not, but things did seem to settle after that, and he did seem to do better. Um, and I'm sure we did better also from that point because we knew he was struggling at that point. And so he finished high school with taking a girl to the prom. They both wear wore dresses at that time because I think at that time he may have also thought he was a lesbian because nobody was using the word transgender back then. And he was born in 1989 and there was no discussion of transgender anything. And so it was a learning curve for our whole family, you know, and then, like I said, he went to college and he started on testosterone probably 12 years ago. And he is now married, happily married with a baby and living life like everybody else. Now, you said that when he came out as trans at the age of 18, your family accepted and loved him, continued to love him just like you did before. Were there any negative reactions within the broader family? I think there was a couple, like maybe a son-in-law or, you know, not any of our children that were confused by it. And actually, it was my son-in-law, my oldest daughter's husband, had a little bit of a difficult time accepting it. But over time, he has certainly embraced Sean. But I think on a whole, most of our family was very supportive and has been supportive as our children have found people, you know, that they love and they wanted to get married to. And we have, you know, our oldest grandchild right now is 26 and they've all accepted Sean because actually through most of their lives, he has presented male so that's what they've seen and that's what they've known. And so it hasn't it hasn't really been a struggle for him in that sense. And it hasn't been a struggle for us in that sense. And I'm certainly grateful for that because a lot of parents who don't accept their transgender child at times are making a decision on whether you want that child to remain in your life 
And if you want that child to remain alive, it's it's really tough. Let's talk about that a little bit because not all parents would react or do react the same way that your family did. According to the Trevor Project, homelessness and housing instability are a huge problem among transgender youth, with 38% of transgender girls and 39% of transgender boys reporting to have been affected by it. Parents often react in shock when their children come out as trans and end up kicking them out of their homes. What would be your advice, your words of compassion to parents who might be deeply confused by what their children are going through as trans kids? I don't want to shift blame onto anyone for not knowing what to do, for being overwhelmed, but clearly making a child's life even harder by putting them on the streets cannot be the solution. That's a great question. At Uplift, we have um, several young adults in our young adult group that have been kicked out of their homes or they've left their homes voluntarily because their parents are not accepting of them. And the majority of those youth are transgender. It has left some of those youth with some deep trauma. They have had religious trauma. They have had trauma through neglect and abandonment. Um, they often struggle even with their own health issues because some of them have had their parents cut off their health insurance. And so when they have an emergency, maybe they lost their job and they can't afford groceries next week, Uplift has a CARES fund and we will try and help them as often as we can with as much as we can. So when a parent makes that decision, I, I know you said you don't blame them because they don't have the information, but I tell our youth all the time that your parent is an adult and they are responsible for their decisions. And so there are so many places to get the information about being part of the LGBTQ community that I always put that back on the parent. They are an adult. If you have a question about your checking account, you go ask about how to you know, navigate that. If you have a question about your child, you should be doing the same thing. I know there's a lot of hatred and discrimination down here in the South when it comes to the LGBTQ community. There's a lot of misinformation, and I can't change that, even though I've tried. <laughs> I'm only one person. But in your heart of hearts, if you love your child, you should be wanting to do what's best for them because the suicide rates for transgender youth are very high. I, I believe they are 50% as far as transgender youth committing or attempting suicide is about 50% before they reach the age of 25. And I believe about 30% to 40% of those suicide attempts are serious attempts where that person needs medical attention. I know there have been suicides in the upstate of 12 and 13 year old youth. And that is part of the reason the Uplift Outreach Center is here, is so that we can decrease those events and offer some type of suicide prevention for these youth. Let me speak on that for a minute. I have some numbers here. So for, for many trans people out there, it may feel like the whole world is against them. After all, one thing many people do not seem to notice is that 82% so that's 82% of trans individuals have considered killing themselves, 82%. And 
40%. Now your number was for youth. I think this is the broader number for um, all transgender individuals. 40% have attempted suicide, according to the NIH. Clearly, we as a society have a lot of work to do. If 80% of a demographic feel like they are so hated, so unaccepted, so unwelcome, that they contemplate just ending it all, that is heartbreaking and sad. What would you say to that kid out there right now, living in our very torn and divided world? What would be your plea for them to stay? That question really hits home this morning. I have befriended a transgender woman on Facebook several months ago. She's clearly an adult, has a job up until recently, but she also has a lot of mental health issues that need to be addressed. Now, I'm, I'm going to stop there and caution people that think being part of the LGBTQ community or being transgender is what causes your mental health problems. That is not true. That is like saying that a hetero cisgender person has mental health problems because they're a hetero cisgender person. Mental health problems come from a lot of different sources, from trauma, genetics, and life experiences. And so, like I said, I've been trying to support her along with another person that's been um, assisting her with resources. But today was just a day where things started to really fall apart for her. And she is contemplating suicide. And as much as I tried to stay on messenger with her and, you know, plead with her to please call a hotline or call Carolina Behavioral Health. She just, she is set on the fact that she cannot go on any longer. And so life has been really hard for her from what I understand. And I think part of that, I think the state of South Carolina needs to look at that um, and take part of the blame for that because they have, for the last several years, tried to pass bills against transgender people specifically. And I know this year there was two bills pre-filed, and one is, and I apologize for not knowing the numbers off the top of my head for these bills, but one is so that uh, transgender youth cannot have any gender-affirming care whatsoever. Um, which includes hormone blockers. And hormone blockers have been proven to not affect your body in the way people think they do. A lot of children take hormone blockers for differing diseases and syndromes and conditions. And so they are safe to use. I, I believe they've been in use for 20 to 30 years. And so there's been a lot of research. It's documented they're safe. The other bill that is being pre-filed or has been pre-filed in South Carolina is to stop gender-affirming care for adults up to age 25. Now stop and ask if that makes sense. If the South Carolina state legislature told a straight man that he couldn't take care of his body until he was 25 in the way he chooses to, there would certainly be an uproar in this state. And there is no uproar right now from the larger community against these bills. So if a youth came to me, and that has happened before, and they are suicidal or thinking they want to cause self-harm, we often reach out to their parent or caretaker to make sure they get the right resources. Always give them resources. 
we we do tell them it's going to get better because that's our hope that it's going to get better. For someone like I spoke about this morning, it has not gotten better for that individual. And so I'm not even sure at this point today what will happen with her. I'm I'm hoping that it's a positive outcome, but society has to make changes in order for these youth to even feel like they are worthy. If you're watching the news or you're on social media or you're in school being bullied, um, and there's so much bullying going on in our schools, especially in regards to transgender youth, and you're constantly getting the message that you're not worth it, and you're no good, and you're crazy, and whatever names you're being called, how do you expect a child to live through that with a positive outcome? I'll have to add in here that at Uplift, we also provide financial assistance for uh, mental health. I think we have 15 youth right now that are we pay for their mental health therapy because that's suicide prevention. And if we're going to have an organization that claims you know, suicide prevention, you know, we have to put our money where it matters. And we have to make sure these youth have a life because they're just like everybody else's kids. And they are somebody's kid. And they do want to be alive and they do want to contribute. And they have so much to contribute to society. And I think we need to give them that opportunity. Luckily, Sean was not one of the kids kicked out. He had a family who loved, supported, and protected him. What changed for you, your family, and Sean himself after he came out as trans? Um, well, we soon moved to South Carolina after he came out as trans. I had been a caseworker for foster care youth for several years at that point in time. So when we moved to South Carolina, I was not working immediately. And so I searched out the closest PFLAG organization. And um, PFLAG Spartanburg, which is about close to 25 years old now, was where my husband and myself and, and Sean uh, made some visits. And they, are, they have monthly peer support group meetings. And it's uncomfortable at first to sit in a meeting and kind of spill your guts. <laughs> but they were they were very welcoming and warm and supportive. Uh, Sean didn't go to a lot of those meetings. It was mostly my husband and I. And um, I soon became a board member for PFLAG Spartanburg. And so I think we just immersed ourselves in not only how to help our son, but to how to help other people in the community that might be experiencing the same level of feeling not supported and unwanted. And PFLAG Spartanburg, which still remains, you know, to be a supportive organization to this day, actually is what the seeds were planted for the Uplift Outreach Center. And so I kind of graduated from PFLAG Spartanburg to become a co-founder of the Uplift Outreach Center here in Spartanburg, specifically for LGBTQ youth, because there were no safe spaces for these youth before the Uplift Outreach Center was founded. For those of our listeners who don't know what PFLAG is and stands for, can you elaborate on that? I can. It's uh, PFLAG stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. And I believe PFLAG National right now is celebrating their 50th birthday this year. It was started by a mom 
whose son was gay, and she just got out there and started protesting, I think during a parade in New York City, and she carried signs and got some other parents to do the same uh, back around 19, the early 1970s, I think. And so that's when PFLAG National was born, and there are several cities and towns across the country that have a PFLAG organization. And um, like I said, they are very supportive uh, they do a lot of community outreach. They have a monthly peer support group meeting. They can be reached on Facebook and Instagram. You can call their phone number if you have a question or need support um, or need any kind of suicide mental health resources or where to get gender affirming care. And it's just, it's a great organization that I didn't even know existed until we needed it. And that's often a slogan that people at PFLAG um, have, and I might get this wrong, <laughs> but um, it's like, if if you don't think you need PFLAG, then PFLAG needs you. And I, I kind of like that because people helping people is usually the best way to solve a problem in our society. You mentioned earlier that Sean chose to transition. What was that process like? Um, I wasn't with him, and that's certainly, you know, Definitely not my story to tell. I can tell you from from what I experienced, um, I know there was some mental health appointments. I believe if you're transgender, you have to get a letter stating that you are transgender or you've seeked the resources to figure all that out and you know supportive resources. And then he had to find an endocrinologist for his HRT medication which he did, that was a struggle. Um, I can tell you that I made several phone calls for him to different endocrinologists here in the Spartanburg area because it was very uncomfortable for him to do that. And I didn't realize the level of uncomfortableness until I started making those phone calls. And so I Googled a bunch of endocrinologists and on their websites, they all said they do HRT. So I would call and explain the situation. I would be put on hold. This happened multiple times. I would be put on hold to have a receptionist get back to me and say, oh no, we stopped doing HRT. We don't do that anymore. And so, and gosh, this was 10 or so years ago. And so the resources that are available now on like the PFLAG website or other websites, it was just a struggle at that time. But he did find a, an endocrinologist that provided him the prescription. And when he got home that day, he was very excited. And so I was kind of like, I gave birth to you, so let me give you the first shot. <laughs> and he agreed to that. And that just made me so happy that I could do something to help him with this transition. And so I did. I gave him his first shot. And he has to see his endo. I can't tell you how often he has to see his endo, but he has to see his endo on a semi-regular basis for blood levels. There was a time where his hemoglobin was very high and they wanted to take, you know, put him on pause for his HRT. And that was another discussion we had. And, you know, he just didn't want to stop taking it. It was pretty early in his transition. And, and I said, well, you know, why don't you just take a break from it? And he was really upset. And he said, mom, because the danger was if your hemoglobin is really high, I probably should mention this, you, you're prone to blood clots. So I was, you know, as a mom, I was scared. And I, I was like, you know, so just take a break. And he, he looked at me, he said, mom, 
if I died from a blood clot because I take my HRT, then I die from a blood clot and I die a man. And I got that. It was, that was the nitty gritty part of it. And so a lot of people might not agree with that, but I'm going to support my child in whatever my child wants and what their wishes are. They're not breaking the law. They're not doing anything bad. They're not harming anybody. They're trying to live their life. And so um, he did take a short break and, you know, things worked out, obviously, but that was a real struggle for him. And I think as you pointed out earlier, Stefan, he has had a lot of support, but I think that speaks to the significant, not sure what word to use, the significant despair, I guess, that some transgender people feel, because even with all the support we've given our son, he has had those dark moments. and. If there's a transgender kid out there, an adult that is not getting any kind of support, can you imagine the despair and darkness they must feel probably on a daily basis? We have one transgender youth at Uplift that spoke on a mental health video last year, and he kind of talked about mental health issues being like putting a board on two sawhorses and then piling bricks on top of that board. And how many bricks can you pile on top before that board breaks and everything falls apart? And I, I often think of that analogy when I'm speaking to somebody because I think that's true for everybody. How much can you take before you finally break? And so why would we as a society want to put more on anybody than what they can handle? You mentioned uplift earlier. When did you decide that the love and acceptance you had for your son would be best shared if you invested some of your time, effort, and money into LGBTQ advocacy work? You started Uplift, as you said, a safe space for queer youth. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was on the PFLAG Spartanburg board. I was often on that board, better part of 10 years, and USC Upstate. Well, some folks at USC Upstate and uh, Weston Milliken and some other uh, folks who helped with the finances did the first LGBTQ needs assessment here in the Upstate in 2017, 2018. So when those results came out, one of the recommendations was that there needed to be more safe spaces in our area, especially for youth, because there were none. And I'll have to reiterate that if you think school is a safe space for an LGBTQ youth, it is probably one of the most dangerous places for those youth right now, especially in our region. And so when the study came out, our PFLAG board sat down and the then president, Sally McClellan, and I met with Weston Milliken and his financial advisor and said, all right, we want to start a safe, safe space. And they looked at us and they said, raise the money. <laughs> we were like, oh gosh, how do we do that? So uh, the other co-founder of Uplift, Eric Nolly, who sadly passed away in October, was very close. Him and I were very close. Eric came up with the idea of the Rainbow Masquerade Ball. And that event raised approximately $15,000 in 2019. And that was the seed money for the Uplift Outreach Center. And we had that Rainbow Masquerade Ball in May. We opened the doors to Uplift in August of that year. We were only open for six months when COVID came along and shut our doors. 
we quickly jumped on a Discord server so our youth still had the support um, that we could offer them. Um, we did all of our programming on that server. And for two years, we remained there until March of 2022 when we went back to in-person when COVID numbers were safe and we felt comfortable to have a room full of youth and adults. And that's how Uplift was born. And it has grown into uh, from one meeting twice a week to three meetings a week and uh, serving youth from the ages of 10 years old up to 22. So if you're going to turn 23, that's you know when your time at Uplift will end, but we will still be there to support you. Our larger plan for our organization is that one day we will serve all ages up to senior citizens, um, and that will take us some time. That is our plan. And so Uplift was clearly born out of number one, the need, but also because of suicide prevention. And, and I should back up because one of the caveats at that time um, in 2018, very early 2019, there was a young transgender student in this area that was being bullied relentlessly in school and they chose suicide. And a lot of it had to do with how the school, well, schools generally, if I'll just give you a small example. When you line up for the cafeteria or gym class, they line up by boys and girls. And this student was, like I said, transgender and was constantly being picked on for lining up, I guess, in the wrong line. And so all of these incidents happened right around the same time. And so it was very clear to the PFLAG board at that time in Spartanburg that we needed to do something and we needed to do something very quickly. So that's why the money was raised and the organization um, began. And we have grown from about, I think we had about 70 youth our first six months. And I was just looking at our registration form the other day. We have about 180 youth registered and they, they're not always at an uplift. Some are still on our discord server um, because some of our youth live in the Columbia, the Easley area, the Anderson area and can't make it uh, because of transportation. But we support any youth that comes through our doors or a youth that, that we invite into our Discord server. And so that's why we have Uplift. If some of our listeners are wondering how they can become better allies to LGBTQ individuals or anyone who belongs to a marginalized group, really, what would be your advice? First of all, you need the interest and the passion. If you don't have the interest and the passion then you're probably not going to be looking into being an ally for anything. But marginalized communities, I think, with that passion, you have to pay attention to legislation. You have to be involved in your community doing outreach with several organizations um, and not just one because it's kind of like dropping a pebble in a pond. There's a ripple effect. And so our youth, even though... They are LGBTQ, they might have an issue that I have to go to another organization for. And so we all partner together. And I would do your research on what you would be interested in. I would pay attention to legislation because we're talking about marginalized communities, and there is often legislation written against those communities. And I would be ready to do some hard work because it doesn't come easy. It often doesn't come easy. Um, I've been executive director for 
about four years now, and I have maintained volunteer status. And so I put in probably 30 to 35 hours a week, sometimes more, in making sure our organization is, you know, being run properly and we're crossing all our T's and dotting our I's and fundraising, which is a huge part of keeping us alive, um, and writing grants. And so allyship and volunteership takes a lot of work. And I, I would not tell anybody otherwise. We are primarily volunteer run. So we have about 17 volunteers and they are some of the best people I know. They will give up a Saturday morning or a Saturday evening to help supervise our meetings. And it's just, I, I don't care if you want to go rescue dogs or cats or help people. I would just urge you to do your research and pay attention to your surroundings and what's kind of coming down the pike as far as legislation goes and where the dollars are coming from. Because grassroots and nonprofits, it's all about the money and the people. If some of our listeners would like to support Uplift and your work specifically, what can they do? Oh, gosh, there are so many things. I get asked this question very often. If you'd like to help Uplift, you can always make a donation. That's one of the easiest things. Um, you can go to our website, uh, which is upliftoutreachcenter.org, and find our PayPal link. Uh, we also have Cash App, which is Uplift Cares. You could follow our Facebook page for any of our fundraising events. Our third Rainbow Ball will take place May 13th, and ticket sales are are up right now. Um, you have to be 21 or over to attend. We had a Halloween event in October. You know, we're always busy. We're always doing something. If you see us in the community, um, we'll be at Spring Fling. You could say hi to us and drop in and just talk to us. Sometimes helping us is voting against certain laws <laughs> and not supporting certain politicians. Um, maybe talking to a neighbor about the LGBTQ community. If you see somebody at school being bullied, maybe you could step in and stop that. There, there's a lot of ways you can help, and it doesn't have to be specific to our organization, but to the LGBTQ community, um, because kindness matters, and you never, ever know what somebody's been going through that day. And I think if you just stop, check yourself, educate yourself, and just be kind, I think that would help a lot. Now, Deb, you are 64 years young. You are still a force to be reckoned with, and I think you'll never stop. Are you ever going to retire? And where exactly do you draw your strength and positivity from? Oh, that's such a great question. This is the million-dollar question because my husband and I are reaching that age, and we do own a remodeling company, and it employs, I don't even know how many employees. We, we might have seven employees right now, but two of them are are sons. And so my husband may never retire, even though I'm urging him to do so. I do want to retire. I am getting tired. <laughs> and I feel like our organization, our organization could probably be run better by somebody younger who has more energy. Um, and that's definitely a plan in the next year for the Uplift Outreach Center. I will still remain on the board or as an advisory person. But The best news is we bought a camper last year. So our plan is to retire, sell our house, and probably boondock for quite a while across the country. We have people in, in you know several states that we can visit. I've only been 
west of the Mississippi twice, and that was once to Colorado because my brother and sister-in-law moved out there last year, and my husband and I just got back from Seattle because we met his uh, older brother, who he's been separated from for many, many years, and so that was a lovely trip, but I would love to see more of this country and experience the people across this country. And so that's our retirement plan. So if my husband doesn't retire, Stefan, I might I might not be retiring or I might just go get in that camper myself. I'm not sure yet, but that's kind of our plan. What is your hope for this country and the world for the future? Oh, my hope for this country. I'm putting a lot um, on this generation coming up I think this younger generation has much more confidence than any previous generation I've seen at this age. Uh, when I was in school, I wouldn't have dared to open my mouth to an adult and question their decisions or question something they said to me. And um, I know I raised my kids to be respectful, but I also raised them to question. And I think this generation is even more confident in doing so. I've urged my adult children how important it is to vote. We urge our youth at the Uplift Outreach Center the importance of voting to be cognizant of what is coming down the pike as far as local, state, and federal legislation. There's too much legislation trying to be passed to harm their lives, and so they're going to have to take stewardship of this. And that's why I hope this generation, I I've seen more LGBTQ youth in the last four years in schools, at Uplift, in the community. I often wear, and I'm wearing it today, my jacket with all my buttons. I've had youth come up to me at the grocery store and say, I love your buttons. And then I know I'm making, I'm making an impact um, just by wearing an ally button or a transgender button and I, I, you know, just supporting these folks. So I'm just hoping we can turn around what's happening in this country and we can start really caring about people and not policy and that human rights and equality are more important than laws that are squashing those. In your intake form, you mentioned that your biggest regret is not having more dogs. I have two adorable fur babies myself. Gizmo just turned 16 and Poppy Luna is two. We also have two cats now that my son wanted, but that I ultimately take care of because he's a teenager and life is hard for teenagers, I reckon. Anyway, how many dogs do you have and how many do you wish you had? Well, I wish I had all the dogs. <laughs> so growing up, I didn't have a dog most of the time because my dad didn't like dogs. And one of the first things that happened after his suicide was my mom got me a Welsh Corgi. So that was my first actual dog. Um, but right now we have three dogs and they come in small, medium, and large. So we have Stella, who is a very small French bulldog. She's about 20 pounds and she is almost 10. Then there's Kalua, who is an old English bulldog. She's a little overweight for her size, but she's happy. And then we have our uh, two-year-old Uh, Italian Danuf. So he's uh, Cane Corso and Great Dane. He's about 140 pounds. His name is Giovanni. And um, he's only two, so he's still kind of in puppy mode. And our cat, Chicken, um, who I found out by our chicken coop about, my gosh, eight years ago now. And so he was feral, barely alive, 
It took me two weeks to hold him. I had to use pot holders to hold him because he would try and kill me every time I picked him up. But now he follows me everywhere in the house. Um, so our three dogs and our cat. But I would love I would love more dogs, and my husband keeps telling me no. So if my husband, unfortunately, I, I say this jokingly, if my husband passes away, I will I will have more dogs. I will never get another husband. <laughs> But I will have more dogs. Deb, thank you so much for this interview, for sharing your family story with us, and for not turning a blind eye to those who are all too often ignored. I wish you the best of luck for your advocacy, and of course, I would like to wish your family, for babies included, all the best. Now, if people reach out with questions, would you be willing to come back and do a follow-up episode with me? Of course, as long as it doesn't interfere with retirement and road trip plans. Yes, I would absolutely come back. And I want to thank you for this opportunity because I, I feel, as an ally, I feel like this import, this information is very important. And I would come back and, and definitely respond to any questions that you might have from your audience. Do you think Deb is ever going to retire? I have my doubts, to be honest. Speaking to her has been incredible. You can feel so much love and compassion for others and that she has truly understood that you cannot just look away when someone needs your help or support, but that you need to roll up your sleeves and help to lend a voice to the voiceless and make your community safer and better for everyone, regardless whether you agree with how they lead their lives. If you would like to support Deb's organization, Uplift, please check out their website. It's www.upliftoutreachcenter.org. That is www.upliftoutreachcenter.org. Of course, you are more than welcome to send us a whole lot of questions for a follow-up with Deb. As you might know, you can get those questions to us in a number of ways. Call us at 864-501-5033. That is 864-501-5033 and leave us a voicemail message. You can also use our contact form on our website, www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is also where you need to go if you would like to be on this show to tell your own story. So get your butt to www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com today and fill out the intake form so I can be in touch with you ASAP. You may also like and follow us on Facebook or Instagram. We are Thoughtvolution there. As always, please make sure you show some love by rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Sharing really is caring in that case because it helps us out greatly to get more exposure and share the amazing stories of people just like Deb with the whole world. If you want to not only share some love, but also contribute to our work financially and get something for it, you can check out our merch store on our website www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com Whatever you're able to do, it is greatly appreciated. All right, my dear Thoughtvolutionists, I hope Deb's story moved you and perhaps even made you see your own little corner of the world a little differently. People can make a difference. It just doesn't happen by looking away and hoping that somebody else will deal with the inequality and unfairness some people in our communities still face every single day. Do something. Educate yourself and others and try to help when somebody faces bullying, ridicule, or hatred. The suicide rates among LGBTQ individuals are a real problem. Now, if you are perhaps someone who is struggling with their gender identity or sexuality, please know that there are people out there who love you and care about you. If things are really tough right now, 
please call 988. That is 988. It's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Please speak to somebody today. I love you all very much, and I will talk again to you next week. Have a great week, no matter what, and always be kind to each other.